Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Daniel Yellen. This week on the show, Maham Jamal and I had the opportunity to talk with Isabel Scheinman. Isabel is an MBA too at Stern and is a good friend of both of ours. We talked with Isabel about her identity as a New Yorker and a first-generation American, and also talked about NABU, the organization which she helped to co-found right after graduating college and she's been actively working on for the last seven and a half years. NABU's mission is to help eradicate global illiteracy. And we talked with Isabel about how her work at this organization informed how she approached her MBA experience, both in terms of the classes that she's chosen to take and also the work that she'll be doing after graduating later this spring. Isabel is so optimistic positive and thoughtful and it was just a joy to have on the show. I know Maham and I really enjoyed this conversation and we think that you will too. So let's go. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Isabel, welcome to Stern Chats. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I I wish we could flip the script here and I could interview you both, but we'll save that for another time. (laughs) So in the meantime, delighted to to be here and, and share what I can with you. You know, today, today you are in the hot seat. Um, and it'll be another day for us. But I, I'd love Fair to start enough. off. <laughs> I'd love to start off with um, if anybody knows anything about you, they know that you are a New Yorker through and through. And so since NYU has such a strong New York identity, I was wondering if you could tell us what does being a New Yorker mean to you? What it means to me is is interesting. You know, I I am a first generation New Yorker and first generation American. And so I've had the chance to kind of craft my own story of what it means to be a New Yorker. And I, I certainly credit a lot of that to my parents. So my parents are, just to give you the backstory, my, my mother's Greek Cypriot. My father is uh, British. They met in London and moved to New York as teenagers, really, uh, kind of 19 and and uh, 21-year-olds. And they were so nervous, I think, about raising two daughters in New York that they almost did everything to to both give us the best of New York, but also remind us that New York is is not the norm and that we were living in a real bubble oftentimes. And so my version of New York is is shaped by that. I would say I was thrown in from the get-go to the hustle and bustle of life in New York, and it's all I know. I remember speaking to cousins who live in different parts of the world when I was young and comparing our schedules. And even from kind of age five onward, I was just scheduled. Uh, We had activities, we had things to do, we had places to be. And that is one piece of my New York upbringing is just the the hustle and bustle of it. The second piece, which was crucial uh, to my parents kind of instilling in, in us was is the culture of it. And, and I think it's why, you know, right now COVID has been so difficult for many of us New Yorkers because I was raised to 
you know, the theater, the the music, the food, just the the rich, rich culture that is, you know, the melting pot of New York was so deeply ingrained and is so deeply ingrained in me. And it's why we're missing it so much right now. But the kind of combination of the the speed uh, and pace of of New York and also the depth and and uh, real richness of of cultures in in the city is kind of how I how I see myself as a New Yorker. And I certainly wear more black than than the average, I would say. I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, a creature of color, so I do like to, to mix it up, but I, I probably am guilty of that. And the one piece I'll just add, I think growing up in New York, it certainly makes you grow up faster. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was exposed to a lot earlier on uh, than than probably some of my peers were because we just uh, were physically exposed to to a lot. And the beauty of that and the silver lining of that is it has made me want to and and love kind of immersing myself in other cultures because I feel like if you can withstand the grit of New York, you you can withstand the grit of a lot of other places. So I think it's actually really funny that you described yourself as being scheduled growing up because I think people who grow up in New York are used to always being busy and people who move to New York can sometimes be just a little bit shocked by how there's always something going on and things are always moving. What were some of the things that you would do with your family in New York when you were growing up? The scheduled pieces of my life were every and anything. And that comes back to the question of New York, because you have access to literally anything that that you want. I was in piano lessons. I played nearly every sport. I took Greek lessons because that was really important to my family, that my sister and I, though we were worlds apart from our family in Cyprus and in Greece, that we had a connection to, to that heritage. I loathed Greek school. We can get into that uh, another time. But uh, in retrospect, I wish I had taken it more seriously. We, uh, for a period, were in Hebrew school and were learning and preparing for our bat mitzvahs because I am a combination of both uh, Greek Orthodox and Jewish. So, you know, the scheduling was, was hectic, but fantastic as well to be able to jump from school to a sports practice to a piano lesson or a you know Hebrew tutor. And then I also happen to be one of those children, which probably won't surprise either of you, who loved and doing homework and would not sleep until every bit of homework was done to perfection. And so that became a big part of my my schedule, my self-imposed schedule. Um, my parents were confused by that and and didn't we're certainly not the ones pushing me to to strive for perfection in my fifth grade homework, but that was a, a self-imposed schedule, I suppose. So as well, something I find interesting about the first generation immigrant experience is how much people identify with um, their parents, you know, root home country or that root culture. And it sounds like for you, it was very much a priority in your upbringing and the way that mm-hmm. you planned your time. Um, would you mind just telling me a little bit about what that relationship is for you um, in terms of your Greek heritage and your Jewish heritage and how much you try to maintain that on your own in your own independent life. 
Absolutely. I think it's changed and it continues to change and evolve uh, with time. And as I discover new parts of me that I can trace back to different origins. And so I'm in some ways just becoming more curious about my heritage as I get older. I think that, you know, when I was younger, there were in, in I'm sure a way that many first generation, you know, can relate. I was quite embarrassed by parts of my upbringing and I will never forget the day that my Greek school had us march down Fifth Avenue in the Greek parade. And I thought, well, this is this is the worst day of my entire life. And I'll never, <laughs> ever forgive them for this. Um, but what does it mean to me? You know, I, I've been able to pull out strands at this point in my life of what I most love and appreciate about each of the, the cultures and and identities that I've been given. I don't see, for me, Judaism, for example, is is not a religious experience, it's a cultural one. I'm a very spiritual person and I had the chance recently to spend time in Israel and that's really kind of in adulthood when I've started to connect with what it really means to, to be Jewish um, and which traditions from this really incredibly rich culture I want to carry out in my own life. Whereas as a child, I went through the motions, but I wasn't, I didn't ever feel deeply, deeply connected. But for us as a family, being Jewish, for example, was a was an opportunity to sit down on a Friday night together. And it was an opportunity to take a little bit more of a of a break on a Saturday. Um, my Greek roots you know, are the kind of fire um, in and and life in a lot of my own experience. And that's where having a huge family for me comes to, to play. And it's where food and the importance, as we were just talking about, of, of slowing down and enjoying. And um, I kind of pull that thread from my Greek, from my Greek roots. And so I don't know where it will all lead me. I certainly identify as well as as being American. And we've had some really interesting conversations as a family, especially over the past year, where, you know, there's been, as we're all, you know, well aware, a lot of political uh, trauma that we've lived through, a lot of, you know, the, the resurgence of the racial justice movement. I think it's forced me to really question how much I identify as an American. And it's been really interesting to have those conversations with my parents who have an entirely different experience having come to this country as, you know, young adults. And it's, it's really solidified for me that I do feel deeply connected to, to New York, but more broadly to America. And it feels like a country and a place that is absolutely um, my origin uh, in many ways and therefore a, a country and a place that I will work to um, build and rebuild and do what it takes to to really contribute into. So the the short story long is I think each each culture has contributed something really different to who I am and I'm I've learned to be proud of of each piece of that and learn to also pull out the threads that I care about and want to carry forward. And the beauty of it in my eyes is that, you know, when I'm in New York, I feel 
Greek and I feel um, British. And when I'm in London, I feel American. And when I'm in Greece, you know, it's just kind of, I like to, I suppose, um, I like to pull on the threads that aren't particularly, uh, you know, that aren't right in front of me and, and use those to navigate. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I think of it. I think I think there's no right answer, and and um, it's such a unique um, background for one, and also just a, a very unique relationship and very individual to each person who has similar experiences. Um, and I kind of want to use that to sort of pivot into what you did in college, because I know that you studied both philosophy and psychology, and you know, as an outsider looking at that, I would think that you were obviously very interested in people um, and mm. the way that people think. And um, I'm curious for you, what was your motivation in, in pursuing that, um, those those subjects in particular? And does that come from some of these experiences that you're sharing with us now? I loved my majors. Psychology, philosophy are absolutely right. All I wanted to do in school was learn how to think and learn how to evaluate and I, I knew, so I actually started at Georgetown as a comparative literature major. And I think that the nice narrative is I, you know, I chose to, to pivot. I think the more realistic narrative is I was overwhelmed by the content and I didn't feel like I yet had the tools to go into some of the literature that we were reading and make sense of it. And I wanted to almost take a step back and and learn how to be a more critical thinker than I was and learn how to ask slightly different questions and then reapproach the the literature in front of me. And I was also at a school that I think is quite special. And I didn't actually choose Georgetown for this, but Georgetown is a Jesuit university, and so it comes with an incredibly um, interesting piece to the school that you don't ever have to touch if you don't want to, but if you do, you absolutely can get lost in it, which is this really, really interesting commitment to service and commitment to certain principles and ways of thinking and being. And in my freshman year, I started peeling back the layers of that. And that's kind of what led me down the, the route of philosophy. It was philosophy for me was never that foreign. It's what my mother studied when she was in university. It is my my uncle was a poet and often wrote, you know, quite philo philosophically. And so it wasn't as though this was an entirely foreign subject matter. It just wasn't necessarily what I what I thought I would do. Um, and as I started taking these really intense and serious comparative literature courses, I thought, "Whoa, I'm not I'm not here yet, and I want to give myself a little bit more uh, of an expansive experience um, to understand how to approach all of this." So, and the psychology are absolutely right. I like to understand why people do what we do and why we think what we think and it felt like a really natural compliment. So both of my degrees actually focused on philosophy of mind and I took the more theoretical side of psychology. And so to me, the dual degree felt like one degree. I just, you know, happened to put two things on my, uh, on my diploma, but that was the inter kind of weaving of them. So I think it's so funny that you studied these incredibly 
theoretical, very liberal <laughs> arts heavy things. And then, excuse me, after graduating, you decided to jump right into something that requires incredible and impeccable execution. Uh, and that's kind of the story of your post-college life is you build things. Um, so what's the thought process? You're 21, 22 years old. Um, you're just graduating college and you decide to start a nonprofit. Like how, how do you get from thinking about the theory of philosophy to something that requires boots on the ground and, you know, books in people's minds in, in your hand, in your case? I've never thought about it this way, but what just popped to mind is that for me, and I think this translates into my MBA experience as well, the classroom is a really sacred place. I've always loved learning. And therefore for me, I want I want the classroom to be a place where action isn't what's required. It's It's thought and it's a kind of experience of being with others and learning with others. And the reason I think I crave that and want that out of my classroom experience is precisely because of what you said in my outside of the classroom experience, I like to do and I like to build and I almost, you know, sometimes to a fault am, am active. And so it's interesting to think of it that way. I can, we can talk about, you know, the MBA experience, but I very much replicated that in the classroom. I, I don't necessarily do the practical things. I do the things that allow me to, to take a moment to think and, and rethink and reflect. Um, so that is why my classroom experience probably looks very different to my, my outside experience. I might take it a step back if you don't mind to pre Pre-college, I grew up involved with a number of organizations, both social enterprises and nonprofits that focused around girls' education. Uh, one in particular was certainly the kind of root of a lot of what I do now. It's an organization called Girls Learn International. I joined when I was beginning high school, I started at a new high school, and it was one of the first things that I that I joined. And essentially, this organization trained young women, young girls like myself, in all of the issues that girls our same age around the world were facing. We were immersed in the problem to really understand what, what these girls are facing. And then we were trained in policy on how to be the best advocates for our counterparts. And so I had a really um, eye-opening and, and also hands-on kind of experience with this organization. And going into college, I thought I wanted to go into politics. I thought that's where I could translate everything that I had been, that I had learned and that I had loved about, you know, being um, involved in the work of Girls Learn International. So that is partly why I chose Georgetown was um, because I knew that it would give me the chance to potentially intern on Capitol Hill if, if that's what I wanted to do. And that is what I wanted to do. And I wound up interning with my New York Congresswoman, Carolyn Maloney, who did a lot of work and does a lot of work uh, on anti-human trafficking, which is a big part of what I was learning and studying and, and just thinking about. Um, and so I spent time in college on Capitol Hill. Uh, it was both enchanting and disenchanting at the same time. And my 
experience made me realize that right after school, I wanted to be more hands-on and immediate in the kind of work that that I did. Um, I think that there is, I give so much credit to people who begin their careers in positions where they know it will take years and years and years to work up to, you know, a level where they are the decision maker. I wasn't patient enough for that, I think. And I felt that quite early. And so that was a turning point for me. I thought I'm not, I'm not, this is not the path I want to go down right now. I would like to do something where I can be at the table of ideating and of creating. Um, so Daniel, to your point, I, I do like to build things and fortuitously and you know I I think by you know fate I wound up being introduced in my senior year of college as I was starting to explore what organizations I might want to work with what companies I might want to work with what fellowships uh, I might apply for I was introduced to Taniella Evans who has now become my co-creator of NABU and and partner in this endeavor for uh, almost a decade now. We were sat next to each other at a dinner. Um, certainly the intention of our friends, you know, was for us to to talk. They knew we would, they knew we would get along and they knew we would have a lot uh, to share. And she at the time was building this vision for a, what at the time was called Library for All. She and a partner were working on it and uh, is now called NABU. And truly over the course of that dinner, she shared what was really an idea. She had been living and working in Haiti. She had been building a, constructing a school and running a school, uh, a high school for children after the earthquake. And her vision was, how can I, you know, I could spend my entire life building schools, but um, it won't be a, a drop in the bucket of what's needed um, for our world. And she sat there and walked me through this vision of a global digital library, which you know has now, uh, we can talk about what it's what it's become. Uh, but, and I just thought, oh my gosh, I number one, I'm enthralled by you. I think she, you know she was and remains one of the most inspiring, inspired people in my life. Um, and number two, this is this is where the action is, and I want to I want to help with this, and I want to build it, and. We still laugh about it today, but I wrote her uh, about a 10 page note the next day and said, I'm, you know, I have two months left before graduation, but I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and put me to work and let's figure out how to get this idea out there. And, you know, and we'll go from there. And she replied, she was, she had flown to Haiti the next day. She replied and said, funny, you should say we're actually running a, a Kickstarter campaign to raise our seed capital. And we don't know what to do. Can you can you help? And so for the last two months of Georgetown and then starting truly the day I graduated, I was I was in it uh, and there was really no going back uh, in the best possible way. I ran our Kickstarter campaign. We surpassed our goal on Kickstarter. The campaign went went viral. We raised one hundred and ten thousand dollars, which at the time in 2013 was you know, not that that's that long ago, but it was one of the first campaign nonprofit campaigns to run on Kickstarter. And so it it just had an incredible success. And truly, from that moment on, it was, you know, my life. And so how do you eradicate illiteracy 
And where does NABU fit into that puzzle? Ah, well, we spent probably the first three years of building the organization, honestly, asking ourselves that that same question. Um, I think that we were, when we first started, Taniella and and her partner uh, Rebecca at the time were really solutions oriented. They had a vision in mind, uh, which was a reading app that would partner with publishers all over the world and uh, get access to their content and then deliver that content through a reading app. And that's where we started. And it was, a at the time, a bold, ambitious idea. It has become so much more bold and, and so much more ambitious because we spent the first few years playing around with what is our role. You're absolutely right. Like global illiteracy is this huge, huge, really kind of giant problem to wrap one's arms around. And it's giant because there are so many threads and so many connections that have to fall into place for us to solve this issue. And I think at first we thought we we want to do it all. And then years in, the more conversations we had, the more partners we worked with, the more that we tried and tried and kind of pushed a boulder up a hill, the more we realized there is one very unique piece of this ecosystem that is not being addressed and not being solved. And if solved, it would be the most cost efficient for us as a tiny organization, the most cost efficient and effective way that we can make a dent in this problem. And that thread for us was access to books, access to books in one's own language. So what we were seeing is that children, we studied the problem um, and and Taniella has a background in international development work. uh, And so she approached it from one angle. I approached it from another. Our other partners approached it from, from others. And what we were seeing is that children, even children, globally who were enrolled in school and showing up for school and who had a teacher in front of them, they were still not learning how to read after four years of being in school. There were 250 million children at the time that we started who were enrolled in school for four years and were were coming out the other end without any knowledge of how to read. And so that's where we started. And we started peeling back the layers. Why is that? And what do they have access to? And how, without solving everything at once, how can we make our dent? And we learned that kids do not have access to books in languages that they speak and with stories that they that they understand and that they can relate to and that they are reflected in. And so that felt to us like a critical component. And that's where we've really focused our energies. So what started as a vision for being the kind of um, uh platform to aggregate all of the content in the world and then feed that out to the to children and schools and families who needed that became the what we are today which is a tech enabled children's book publisher because what we found is that it's not that kids weren't getting access to the books it's that the books didn't exist and that kids need books in their own language there's a real science behind this and i am certainly not um the the you know pedagogical expert here by any means but there is a science that we follow that shows that children need access to at least 50 titles 
every year for the first three years of their learning in the language that they are speaking in order to gain the basic building blocks and understanding of literacy. And then they can graduate into another language, but they'll at least have learned how to pair sound with, with symbol. And what we were seeing in countries like Haiti, for example, is that children were speaking Haitian Creole at home and then the minute they started school, they were being taught to read and write in French. And so there was this disconnect. And we thought we can plug this gap. We can plug this gap by creating, authoring stories that get, first of all, get children excited about reading. Second of all, help them learn to read in the language that they are speaking at home and then bridge that gap into whatever the international you know, language of, of their country is, English, French, Spanish, um, et cetera. So that is what NABU has, has become and evolved into over the years. We now publish uh, collections of children's books, the first kind of early grade reading collection, oftentimes in a mother tongue language. Um, and we distribute, we do still have our proprietary reading app and we distribute all of our content through our app, but also now through partnerships. We work, for example, with UNICEF and they have a print distribution of the content that we are creating. Um, so I could talk about NABU for forever. I will pause there. It is, if you can't tell, while I'm at business school and no longer day to day working with my team, it is still my kind of lifeblood and, and joy. I mean, it's it's so inspiring to hear about. And I think what I find very powerful about you describing NABU is just that you were naturally drawn into this bigger vision. And it was something that, you know, it was a purpose higher than than just simply your own professional and career uh, goals. And I can see why that that, that would be very um, all consuming. Um, and so I'm interested in in just that, you know, you as as someone who took leadership in a space that needed action and uh, you, especially as a woman doing that, um, you know, I find you to be someone who possesses natural leadership qualities. Um, and I'm just curious if you if it ever struck you that you were a group of women in a space trying to make change uh, and if you ever felt like you had to work against um, societal norms and, and pursuing your cause. First of all, thank you. That's a very high compliment coming from you. And leadership has been a big part of what I am re-examining and, and relearning and learning anew at Stern. So uh, I appreciate that. The, the short answer is yes. I, I grew up in a space in which I had strong women in my life. I was often you know, for me, being a young a woman growing up, a young girl growing up, I was made to believe I could do anything. And I had that special experience of, of not feeling like there were any barriers in my way. And so when it came time for NABU, I oftentimes didn't even recognize what was happening in the moment until it became a conversation later. So there were so I'll give you the kind of the, the negative side and then I'll give you the, the positive side. The negative is there were times when we certainly were not taken seriously in meetings because myself and, and Taniella and our, our third partner, Beck, would 
walk into a room and you're right, it was three young women. I happen to be the youngest. So Taniela is a, a few years ahead of me and, and Rebecca was a few years ahead of her. But, you know, we would walk into a room and not be taken seriously or worse, be asked questions about our work that no man, I don't believe, would be asked because they would just be assumed. And we were we were oftentimes forced to explain away a lot that I don't think that I, I'm not certain and, and who knows, but that I don't think um, if we were men in our position, we, we would be. Um, and, and yet in those moments, I, and I kind of, it's not funny, um, but I was really naive and I, I didn't, I kind of laughed about it because there were times when it was so obvious that I didn't even realize. And we would walk out of the room and Taniela would say, God, that was so frustrating. And I would say like, what? He was just, you know, curious about our work. And of course I'm happy to explain it. And so I think my, my, um, oblivion was kind of a shield in a way that if I had, if I had processed it all differently i'm not sure you know i would have had the stamina to to keep going with it um because there there was certainly a gender dynamic at play there was certainly an age dynamic at play that said it also worked in our favor i think being a young woman right out of college you know our running our kickstarter campaign i will never forget this our the first thing that i did was host an event uh, a live event, remember those, um, where I invited everyone, my friends, my family, truly anyone I had ever met in my life into a room. And I said, I have no idea what we are doing, but I think we're doing something powerful and I want you all to get behind it. And I think that there's some kind of energy that comes with with youth and some kind of energy that comes with a woman standing up and saying, I have an idea and get behind me in it that attracted people to to the organization and to the cause. And so while there is the one side of it where we were certainly, and, and I will say continue to kind of push this boulder up a hill of young women with a vision, there's also the flip side, which is I think we were able to infuse our, our vision with a lot of energy because of our identities. And um, I still learn about these, you know, different dynamics. I think that we've had the some of the best advisors and we've had, you know, advisors that didn't see what was at stake oftentimes for us. And it's a really good question to ask though, because I think without reflecting on our experience, we can't do it differently or I can't help others do it differently. Um, so gender, age, it all comes to play. I will say the most frustrating experience um, we had in our early days was watching who else was, what was getting attention and who else was getting money at the time that we were trying to get attention and get money. And looking at some of the companies that were raising, you know, these young men who were raising millions of dollars for their emoji app, and here we were with a solution to eradicate global illiteracy, these three, you know, women with a vision, and we would celebrate if we got a thousand dollar check in. And it was just, you know, moments of my God, how like we live in a, this world. It's it's a little bit crazy. So I think it's interesting because not that many people come into business school with such an idealistic and optimistic perspective of the world. <laughs> um, and so how do you think that approach to your life and your work impacted your decision to get an MBA 
And how do you think that it's impacted your experience in the program so far? I love that question. And I, I think I lost my optimism for a little bit, uh, honestly, midway through this MBA. And I'm I'm reconnecting with it, which I'm really enjoying. So happy to share that. So I suppose, so I was, I was with and at, and so as we've talked about fully immersed in NABU for about seven and a half years and truly loved it and love it clearly uh, until the day that I kind of formally stepped aside as a director and took on a new role as a board member. I felt after seven and a half years that I could easily spend the rest of my life with my team and in that organization. And yet I had reached the the limit of the new energy that I could infuse into our work and the newness of my ideas. And it felt as though what had worked before, which was being scrappy and which was figuring it out as we went and um, just using kind of both common sense and also really leaning on networks of, of advisors and such, everything that I was doing in order to grow in my own um, role and, and to grow the organization felt like it was starting to get stale both for me and for the organization. And that was a moment at which I thought, I cannot possibly imagine leaving for another job, but I need to put myself back into a situation where I am challenged and where I'm forced to think differently and look at the world differently. And honestly, an MBA felt like the most foreign thing I could do. It felt like, you know, if I were on this end of the spectrum, you know, business school was on this end. And, um, that felt like the leap I needed to make. I had a someone in my life, my godfather actually, who has told me from day one he would love me to he would love to see me go to business school. He went to business school. He felt like it changed his trajectory. And I always had his voice in the back of my head too. So the leap of the leap was twofold. It was how can I how can I throw myself into something entirely new? And it was also I'm ready to 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 take a different step, but I'm not ready to leave this organization for anything else. And so education feels like the only the only way that I can uh, achieve both of the achieve all that I need to achieve. Um, so that's honestly what led me to to the MBA. And you're absolutely right. I'm kind of a, a, a eternal optimist. And I didn't, I came into this MBA degree quite uh, open-eyed and wide-eyed and a little bit blind to the realities of why other people were coming into the MBA degree. I've, of course, since learned that and it hasn't scared me away. It's just taught me a lot, I think. But I, I came in really to learn and to learn about a world that felt very foreign to me, which is the world of business and you know corporate, uh, corporate life in corporate America. It seems like Nabu is such a huge part of your life and your identity and, and your love. Um, and I also know that you've likely found, as many of us have found, new parts of yourself in the MBA and new interests as well. Um, I know you spent the summer in, at MasterCard and will be uh, returning there. So do you mind just sharing a bit about um, your decision making and, and moving on from Nabu for now and uh, wh whether you think you'll go back? Absolutely. So. I 
and I, I heard Ben Sperling on one of your last episodes talk very similarly about his involvement with the love of his life, which is his organization, that he has joined his board. I was lucky enough to be invited onto our board of directors. So I'm still very involved with the organization and get to participate in resourcing it and strategizing around it, et cetera. So, and I will continue to do that until they tell me not to. Um, MasterCard came about, and I, I think this is this is where the beauty of coming into business school totally wide-eyed and truly without a, a strict and strong agenda comes in. MasterCard came about because you both might remember on at our launch week, opening week of school, which was the most wildly overwhelming week of my life, one of our speakers was Ajay Banga, who is was at the time the CEO of MasterCard. And I was sitting in Paulson Auditorium and listening to him speak. And I thought, oh my gosh, you've he simultaneously dismantled and then reconstructed my view of the world all within a it must have been 40 minute talk and the way that he spoke about his work the way he spoke about his his vision and version of leadership the way he spoke about what mastercard's agenda is in the world i just thought this seems like my world at nabu translated into a company of you know 20,000 people with global operations and with this backbone of, you know, the foundation of being a really big, um, in my mind, huge structure. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And then I left it there and I moved on and we had the rest of launch week and, and then a corporate presentation for MasterCard happened. And, and I was at the time, because I didn't think I was recruiting for anything, I wasn't ready yet. I was going to every corporate presentation because I thought it was really fun. And I thought it was, when do you ever get the chance to have people from Google and people from Apple and people from Amazon come and tell you about a company like truly never except in business school. So I was going to everything. And naturally, I went to the MasterCard corporate presentation. And again, left feeling like, wow, these are some of the more junior people in the company. And they share the same vision as the CEO. And they are not mouth his mouthpieces. They really deeply feel uh, the work that they are doing and care about it. And so the very uh, long story short is that I wound up applying. It was the only internship that I applied to because, again, I didn't see myself in the kind of formal recruiting pool. Uh, I didn't feel equipped for it, to be honest. And I wound up interning there. Absolutely loved it. The reason that I love the work is because, as we just talked about, education is one huge piece of my life. And I see the world in kind of two frames. The first is if everyone had access to a quality education, what would our world look like? And the second, and this is where MasterCard comes in, is if everyone had access to financial services and access to capital, what would the world look like? And so MasterCard kind of met that need for me, which was answering, how can I learn as much as possible about uh, financial services and about financial inclusion, but do so in a way that I don't feel like I have sacrificed any of the principles that that I have for the place I want to work or the people I want to work with. And so it honestly felt like the greatest 
one of the greatest gifts that this MBA has given me is it it just exposed me to a world that I I truly thought Mastercard was like a you know your standard credit card company and had no idea beyond that and so that is that's kind of the the why uh, I'm excited about the company I'm really really excited to work with the people who work there and I plan I'm going into the two year rotational program which will both be a leadership accelerator and also expose me to different parts of the business, which I think is really important for someone like me who has never worked in the environment of a larger company um, and having access to different teams and working on different products and different services and with different ideas, I think will, I'm thinking of it as an extension really of my MBA um, education. So that's the the why and, and the how. And um, I feel sorry for all the MBA ones who were asking me to you know how this all happened because it was it was a really happy accident and I worked really hard for it and I threw my weight behind my cover letter and my application and all my interviews but it was also very much a happy accident that I found them and they let me through their doors and Isabel you know how much I love MasterCard but but it's it's a a process that I think not enough MBA ones let themselves have, let themselves have, which is to go to the corporate presentations and discover what all of these companies have to offer. Because I know from my own experience that I was incredibly surprised and pleasantly surprised about so many companies out there that I would have written off or thought that I knew something about, but in reality, totally. there was so much more underneath the surface. That would be, this is my recommendation then to everyone that if you're a new student, that yourself in and learn through the companies and through those corporate presentations um totally if nothing more than just to like get a window into these giants that you never get a window into i mean i remember and i won't share my exact thoughts but i remember walking out of the amazon presentation and and just thinking wow that was cool like i you know i only ever get to read about amazon here five employees are standing before me telling me about their experience. Like when in life will that ever happen again? Um, so I, I wholeheartedly endorse that statement. Corporate presentations were awesome for me. And, and so to close this out, um, something that we know about you is that you're a very good hostess. And so I'm wondering, what is this, what is the uh, secret or the key to hosting a successful party and what do you have in mind for when we can actually have parties again wow that is such a high compliment because i i love hosting things whatever it is one person dinner of 10 a huge party so i i take that to heart thank you that means a lot uh what are my well, first of all, I look forward to having you two over when, when that can happen again. I grew up in a home where my dinner table was not only always full, but was full of oftentimes extremely random people. Uh, you know, my parents had their close friends and their friends were always over. And they also, you know, I would say, mom, who's coming for dinner tonight? And she would say, I met this incredible woman on the street yesterday, and I think that we'll all really get along, and I've invited her for dinner. And so, you know, it kind of, 
and my mom is amazing uh, in in that way. You can just imagine the kind of person she is. But I grew up surrounded by always having people over and always um, honoring the people who took time to come over by giving them a wonderful experience in your home. I think it's like sharing a a piece of you when you're when you're inviting someone over or to an event, uh, whatever it might be. Anyway, I get a lot of joy out of bringing people together. It's one of the things I love most is bringing people from disparate parts of my life into the same room and then bringing out the best in them so they see the best in each other. Um, I just like, that's, that's what I love. And so hosting for me is really easy because of that, because it gives me a lot of joy. And I think when you enjoy something, you, you tend to do it better. Um, so that is, is how I think of things. I also love to cook and when you love to cook and are not intimidated by it, it makes it easier to have people over. Um, not that there always has to be a meal involved, but I, I'm Greek, so there always has to be a meal involved. Um, and what do I plan to do when this is over? Oh, so much. I can't, I can't wait till we can be in places together and go on trips together. And I think that Hosting does not need to be a big thing. It does not need to be a there's there's every degree of what it means to be to be a host. And I I'm looking forward to both more intimate gatherings where we can all just I think this pandemic and being in our own worlds has probably forced us all to grow up a lot and reflect a lot. And I'm kind of really excited for the small gatherings where we can just bring all of that together and have those conversations of what this has meant for all of us. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I can't wait to be in a room filled with 300 people and an awesome DJ and just go crazy. Like I, I want, I want it all. So um, I don't know what you can expect, but you can expect that I will be doing a lot of hostessing and also just participating in what others are doing. I'm, I can't wait to reconnect with people. Thank you so much as well. It's been such a pleasure. And I, you know, I feel like I've gotten to know you so much more meaningfully than I have in, um, in the time that I've known you. So thank you for sharing yourself with us and your story. Thank you both for, for having me for clearly developing really thoughtful questions and for doing this. I really love, I love this experience, but I also love listening. I, this was a big part actually for me before coming to Stern was how can I learn about the school, you know, without learning about the school. And it was, uh, you know, partly listening to, to this podcast of, you know, who does this school attract and why, and, uh, who's surrounding the school. And so I just thank you both for carrying on the legacy of this and doing it really beautifully because it's it's a really uh, big part of my Stern story too so I appreciate it thank you so much Isabel and yeah so great to have you on